Welcome back to Footnotes, a history podcast focusing on forgotten moments, people on the wrong side, and those who are stuck in their homes. My name is Mark, and I am joined here remotely with my best friend Kevin during Quarantina Palooza, episode two. <laughs> yeah, we're in week four, and this will be our second episode recording in it. And uh, I think because we're all going a little loony, Mark has allowed me to do an episode on World War One, which I... Uh, don't plan on doing too many episodes in the show about, but uh, yeah, we we tend to stay away from like the big the big rock moments in history, which is interesting because I feel like there's a lot of small players in big moments that could be talked about. But I do like that we tend to stay away from like even like non footnote times of history. We've done a lot of stuff in like certain eras of the of U.S. history that don't feel heavily covered, and we've done a lot of like more medieval history that like feels like kind of removed from the common narrative. So I'll be curious to see what we're doing today in a very major moment in history, because like a lot of these episodes, I have no idea what we're talking about. Yeah. I, I don't even think you know anything at all. Like I think 0% of what we're talking about today. I think all, all I know is you told me you had another episode ready. And so here we are. All right. God, this, this show's so easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it says the guy who had to edit for like 16 hours yesterday. Oh gosh. Yeah. Here's, here's a fun peek behind the curtain of, of this show's production. Um, this morning at 6am, our only, at least at this point, our only late episode has ever, that has ever come out, came out. Um, so I don't know when this episode's going to be dropping, but it is further down the line, but today is April 9th. And today we dropped, uh, endurance episode two, part two of our endurance series, an episode that took me probably eight hours to edit when all was said and done because there was just there was some timeline things that had to be fixed but aka i actually made a mistake in the recording but it was it was the longest the longest edit we've ever had to do and it was really a slog through things but we are it is done and I don't remember what we were talking about that. Oh, it's because I said the show was easy. And it was <laughs> on, the, on the tail of the least easy episode we've ever done. But also, at, at, by at current time of recording, uh, Endurance may be my favorite story so far. Yeah, it was actually let's the one can, that... Let's see if you can top yourself. Oh, this is not going to be Endurance level. It's going <laughs> to... You're just going to maybe... You might be mad at me by the end of this one. <laughs> I like to think that I'm always a little mad at you. For our listeners, the the time period that I find most interesting is the you know, the late nineteenth century, the lead up to World War One, and then World War One itself is a time period that I have put just an immense amount of thought and effort and research. I own lots of books on World War One. I read about it all the time, and I find that that specific conflict is above and beyond brutal and interesting and dynamic, and it's very frequently overshadowed by World War II and just a wide variety of other things. World War I happened about 100 years ago now. We're in 2020 right now. A couple of years ago, there was a lot of specials and programs and shows, whether podcasts or like The Great War on YouTube, all about World War I, just because it was the 100-year anniversary of various battles. And people like to talk about the first couple months of the war, and then they talk about the big battles like the Somme and, the Ver- and Verdun, the movie 1917 just came out, for example, which is all about a very tiny moment of time in probably November, December of 1917, which was an amazing movie and got me inspired to do this episode. I haven't seen it yet. I should watch it. Yeah, it, it, it 
covers a, a very micro moment within the war, which is what I've always liked. Um, I think when you get get into a war like a world war in World War One, there's so many different ways you can talk about it. And, you know, we can do the hardcore history, top down, really big picture view, or we can look at a tiny moment. And I'm going to take the 1917 approach and I'm going to encapsulate the war in one tiny insignificant battle that even people who know a lot about the war, like, you know, the British, for example, who that is much more in their consciousness. The British do know their war. What I meant by that is less that the British fight lots of wars is that World War One is in their consciousness like World War Two is in the American consciousness. It's it's the war that had the that really big impact because over the course of a couple of years, giant portions of their young men didn't return home. It wiped out an entire generation. And in France, which suffered a much worse fate, it's called the lost generation because of men that were at about college age, um, you know, upwards of half of them didn't really return home or didn't return home right right in the head the way they were before. Right. So I'm going to talk about today is the Battle of Ober Ridge, which is the most footnoty and insignificant battle. Also, hold on, the Battle of Ober Ridge in World War One. Yes. Because that, that battle name is one of the most Civil War-y battle names I've ever heard. It really is. And, um, you know, this <laughs> this would make a Civil War battle look clean. This is not a good battle. But this, I think, does a good job of portraying the experience of soldiers who had to, to fight in this war of attrition in a, in a good way. Um, okay. th- this battle takes place in May, May 9th, 1915. And it's actually a part of a much larger battle, which was going on when the French were attacking the German lines during this, it's called the Second Battle of Artois. And when I call these things battles, they're not battles. They're more like sieges. Um, that's quoting Winston Churchill. He described World War I as one giant siege because the one thing that we all know about this war is that the soldiers were facing each other in trench lines. They were entrenched. They couldn't move. It was static. It was attritional. The actual front line was this horrid, horrible place, and it didn't move for years. Well, at the same time this is happening, the Germans are attacking up to the north and at a place called Ypres, and they were just starting to use chlorine gas and the gas attacks that first show up in the war at this time. So this is part of a counterattack to a German attack, and it's the little tiny British section of the fight. And so what I'm going to give us right now, and I'm going to do this quickly, is the textbook uber-brief preview of what has happened before so that we understand why this battle has existed. Okay? I don't usually do a lot of military history in this show. Um... I do like military history, but I want to just focus on this one tiny battle. Once, once again, we have to we have to dodge the uh, we have to dodge the the comparisons to hardcore history where we can. World War One started with the assassination of uh, of a Serb, uh, sorry, an, by a Serb of the Austro-Hungarian prince, and then within a about a month or so, the entirety of Europe was all activating their alliances. The Germans invade Belgium, and you know. The first four months, or sorry, the first four months of the war at the end of 1914 result in probably over a million deaths. The European powers at this point had no idea how to fight a modern war, and they basically walked wave after wave of their men, literally walked them into machine guns. At one point in this battle, in some of these early battles, the French try to counterattack. The Germans are absolutely routed and retreat, retreat, retreat back to Paris and barely manage to stop the Germans at the foot of Paris at the first battle of the Marne. During this fight, when you have millions upon millions of Frenchmen fighting millions upon millions of Germans, the British have this tiny little army of five divisions. 
only about four of which are actually in France. The British didn't even have an alliance with the French when they went to fight the war. They just sent their guys over because they had a like backdoor handshake deal to support the French during World War I. And then once the war actually started, the British were like, all right, we got to go help our buddies, the French. That doesn't sound right. But that's what they did. This little tiny French and um, British army, you know, the French army is giant, but the little tiny British army attached to the French manages to hold off one of the biggest German attacks in the war at the first battle of Ypres. There will be five, by the way, but this is the first battle of Ypres. And there, it, it mauls their army so badly that battalions that started with a thousand men are down to 30 by the end of this battle. Jeez. And so the British have to call up all of their reserve forces and send them from their colonies, as well as what are called territorial forces, which are basically guys who had retired from the army, but are still young and you know, fit. They called them back up and they form all these new divisions. One of the guys that we're going to be talking about today, and really we're only going to be talking about one guy's little tiny experience in this battle, was a guy named Albert Money, who was a soldier who had um, been stationed in the Caribbean. He was a well-trained soldier and he was still in his 20s. And he gets called up um, as a part of the King's Royal Rifles Battalion. He gets dropped into a brigade, brigades put into a division, they send him to France. Now, after uh, this first Battle of Ypres, the line stops. There's no more movement of armies. You know, in war, you want your army to be able to move around so you can surround the enemy or you can flank them or fight them. That's where generalship happens. Well, what had happened is now there is a line of trenches with soldiers behind them stretching from Belgium down to Switzerland. And both sides in 1915 are trying to find ways to break that line because at the end of 1914, they had tried to just simply throw as many soldiers at each other as possible. And all it resulted with is lots of dead people. There's a couple of early battles in 1915. And one of them is the British tried to take a, what's called a salient in the German line, which is a little part where the German line poked out into the British line. And so the German line was easy pickings. And there's this little village called Neuve-Chapelle. Neuve-Chapelle. Behind that village, there's the Aubert Ridge, and then there's this major railroad hub called Lille. And the idea was if the British could take that village, go past that ridge, and then take that railroad hub, they would be able to cut the German lines, and then they could focus their attack and break the lines, open the war up, and hopefully end the war, because a lot of men had already died. At this point, 600,000 French soldiers had died. We're, We're in the seventh month of the war? a war that would go for four and a half years, and 600,000 Frenchmen had died. Having this go well would be pretty nice. We're not, we're, not, we're not showing great numbers right now. No, and the British only have a couple hundred thousand troops in total participating at this point. Most of them are still out in the colonies. So they have this little tiny army, this little section of the line, and they're like, all right, if we're going to take this village, we need to focus all of our forces into this one spot. This little, We're talking hundreds of yards of line, and we're going to bomb the German line for 40 minutes. We're going to take all of our artillery, line it up, and just bomb the line, obliterate the line, and then we can rush our infantry through, break a hole in the line, and then we'll send in cavalry behind it. We'll send in guys on bicycles behind it. We'll send in leapfrogging troops behind it, and we'll hopefully punch a hole, send our forces to this railroad hub, and we'll be good with it. And you know what? It works okay, They do this, what's called a hurricane bombardment, which they bombard really intensely for a super short amount of time. They punch a hole in the line. They attack with a northern pincer, a southern pincer, and they capture the village. But by the time they get to this village, which is like literally 100 yards behind the front line, you can see it from your own lines. It's not like they're going really far. They're crossing a couple of football fields. They capture the village, and they can't get any further. 
because all the Germans do is counterattack them. And their soldiers have lost so many troops just on the first initial attack, as we'll see with the actual battle we're talking about, that they capture the village, the Ober Ridge is right in front of them, and they're stuck. But they go, all right, well, we can punch through the lines. We, we know we can break through the German defenses. Let's use that attack strategy again. Because now that we have done that, now that the Germans have attacked to the north and the French are trying to attack to the south, we're going to help the French by doing a, an attack in an otherwise quiet sector that can take this ridge, that can help to cut the supply lines and maybe turn the tide of the French. We can get some movement again. Maybe the French can attack from the south and cut off and flank the Germans. Okay. Now, what I did to kind of start the research for this is I went and looked at the village of Neuve-Chapelle on the map, and I found the city of Lille. And Lille's a decently sized city. Neuve-Chapelle is like six houses and a barn. When I talk village, it's a village. And I tried to find what's called the Aubert Ridge on the map. And I was expecting to find, you know, a ridge. And to call it a ridge is to insult the word ridge. It's not a ridge. It's basically not even a bump. Like, you can't really see it when you're driving around on Google Maps. I looked, I know where the ridge is. I've seen the tactical maps and it's to say, it's just maybe 20 feet high, maybe. So it's only important because if you're on top of that ridge and the land is so flat in this area, you can just see four or five times further. So the fact that this ridge is important is the fact that the Germans can see the British, but the British can't see the Germans. When you're all in trenches and underground, all you need to do is have a little bit of height, and then you can just see what they're doing. God, war used to be so quaint. This is when the quaintness starts to disappear, and you get these random quaint moments in World War I, especially with the way the guys talk about it. Oh, we had a really rough time, a really rough go of it, will be a phrase you read a lot. And a really rough go of it meant, you know, that soldier and 50 of his buddies got massacred. 30 of them are killed. And that's a rough go of it. You're like, what is wrong with you people? So the idea for this attack that Albert Money participated in as a young private soldier. Gosh, how have I not called, called attention to the fact that his name is Money? Oh, it's a great name. What's his, what, what's his ranking right now? Is he, pri- private, is he Private Money? He's Private Money. Private Money is a good name. Isn't it? That's real good. So what the, the British are trying to do in this battle is they're, they're trying to take a small section of German line and just like they did at Neuve-Chapelle, which they now hold as part of their line, they're going to attack from the north with two divisions attacking from the north and another two divisions attacking from the south. And they're going to try to puncture a hole through the German line. And they're going to send in guys on horseback and guys riding bicycles Quaint. across the lines <laughs> and the, the hole they open up. Remember, that had worked to some success at the previous battle and the Germans had sent in reinforcements and started to shell the attacking British troops and they'd stopped the attack. To give you an idea of what the actual lines look like is a trench is actually a zigzag pattern. And the trenches face each other. So the trenches on the British side and the trenches on the German side are parallel. And there's these zigzag lines where they're in a zigzag form so that if an artillery shell hits the trench, it only affects that one little zigzag that it hits. Because they're just hitting each other's artillery shells the entire time. And then they connect those trenches. Each line has trench lines behind it. There's the firing line at the front, the, you know, the support line, there's the reserve line, and connecting those are perpendicular zigzag trenches called communication lines. So you got this trench network and they're facing each other. The British basically have a bunch of ditches with some um, sandbags on them. And in this area, it's super low and flat, and there's drainage ditches and little streams everywhere, and most of the trenches are actually built up. 
They're above ground. They're these big walls of sandbags and wood. And what the Germans had decided to do was add concrete to theirs. They have put fortified what will become pillboxes everywhere where they take a an old barn and they just add a bunch of steel plating to it and then put a bunch of machine guns in it. The, the Germans have put machine gun nests every 15 yards or so, and they're at ground level behind iron shields and steel shields, and they're firing at the knees of the attacking troops, and they're completely invisible to anyone looking at them. The Germans have a firing line, and they just have men standing along the line waiting for an attack. Their trenches are extra deep. If the Germans want, they can hide into these deep dugouts that even if they took an artillery shell, the dugout would probably be fine unless it got hit by a direct hit. They are prepared. They know what's coming. Not only do they know what's coming, they've seen the troops massing up in the British line. On the morning of the attack, the Germans are yelling across no man's land going, you're attacking us today. We know you're attacking us today. And the British can see bayonets sticking up out of the German line just after sunrise. This is not what you want before an attack. You don't want the enemy to be saying, you're attacking us today. Right, right. It's That could really take the wind out of your sails of like, we're going to take them unawares. We're going to punch a hole and we're going to rout those bastards, that kind of thing. Yeah. All of a sudden you're like, when you wake up and you're getting ready to go and they're like, I know what you're going to do. And it's also, that's also very cocky. Like, mm-hmm. like it, I'm picturing like a, uh, like a batter at the plate being like, oh, another curveball, huh? That's original. Yeah, it's like, Gosh, shut up and let me do it. It's like Babe Ruth pointing to the spot in the stands and saying, yeah, throw me whatever. I'm going to hit it over there. So, 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 so the British are, the British are not, are not, are not operating with the element of surprise on their, on their side. No, they're, they're not. And the element of surprise is what leads to a lot of success in these World War I battles. And they do not have it here. Remember, all they're trying to do is get this like tiny ridge. And if they can just push as far as possible, that's the orders that the soldiers get is push as far as possible. The way the actual attack works is you can only attack with so many men at once. The trenches don't allow easy movement. They're narrow, they're small, and if you get up above them, you get shot. And the way you attack is there's a battalion in the front and there's a battalion right behind them. And then there are battalions in support in the you know support trenches and the reserve trenches that move up once the attack starts. Usually the first attacking battalion will move out into no man's land before the attack, whether at night or during the artillery barrage that precedes the attack, or a combination of the two. At this point in these battles, battalions have about, in terms of attacking strength, like 650 to 700 men, and they're in groups of like 200, commanded by a captain in platoons and sections. And Albert Money, for example, is a part of a section of 12 men. And so there's a section, this, you know, multiple sections make a company, multiple companies make a blah, 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 blah. You get the organization of a battalion. But the battalions at the front they move up both during the cover of the night and also during the 40-minute hurricane bombardment that starts the attack. So just picture in your mind these two trench systems. In between them is what's called no man's land. Um, it's usually filled with you know craters and explosions and just not great things. At this point, the no man's land here is pretty empty, and it's actually just a bunch of fields because there hasn't been a ton of fighting here yet. So it's, think of just a giant empty field that's perfectly flat, with maybe a few little ditches and holes, and zigzagging through it are a few small rivers. Now, it's not like you just have to run across an empty field, though. In this field, and in these little rivers, are giant barbed wire entanglements. 
And when we say barbed wire, we're not just talking a small barbed wire fence. We're talking these big spools, these big spirals of barbed wire that are oftentimes four, five, six feet high. They are made to snare and grab hold of you. They are absolutely everywhere. And the Germans have placed them in every single ditch that they can find out front of their trenches, as well as on the surface out front of their trenches. And they've specifically put small openings that allow the Germans to get out, but that means any attacking troop will have to funnel through a small opening. Okay, so the British realize this, and they say, we have a solution. We're going to fire shrapnel shells during our bombardment. As our troops move forward, we're going to fire shrapnel shells on the German line, so not only can the Germans not poke their heads up and shoot at our troops gathering as close to their line as possible, but these shrapnel shells should be able to blow apart the barbed wire, leaving big holes and allowing the British troops to pour into the German line and then push further. So with the way the 40-minute hurricane bombardment works, the first 30 minutes are those shrapnel shells. The, the British troops move up, and then the artillery bombardment pushes back slightly further to the German support line and uses high explosives. And those are intended to just obliterate the German trenches, just blow giant holes into them, kill the men inside, and so allow there to be spots where the British soldiers jump in and can basically use grenades to bomb, that's in quotes, that's the word they use for grenades, in World War I, bomb their way down the communication line and establish you know, footholds in the trench lines. That's the theory. So the Germans have these machine gun nests, they have these fortified posts, they have these reserve lines, they have these super deep, well-protected, in some place, says concrete fortified trenches. There's a big empty open field the troops have to run across, and the British troops are going to try to leapfrog one after another. Each battalion goes just slightly past the first one. Anytime you read something about World War I, you'll see what's called the plan of attack. And the plan of attack actually comes fruition, usually for about none of the battle. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like how war usually goes. So like I said, though, the British were going to attack from two points, and they were going to come from the north, they're going to come from the south, and they're going to puncture the German line. Well, Albert Money is at the southern pincer. And I'm going to go over the Southern Pincer second, but I'll just give you the brief overview of what happens at the Northern Pincer, which, by the way, before I even say this, is the successful Pincer, or more successful. So there's four lead battalions. So we're talking maybe between 2,500 and 3,000 men lined up in the space of about 200 to 300 yards of the trench. That's not a lot of space, by the way. So these guys are really, really closely stacked together. And most of them are just privates, guys with guns, and these are good troops, you know, these are well-trained men. They're, they are guys who have seen some experience or are decently well-trained at this early point in the war. There's a bunch of Indian troops here. So there's, um, there's a lot of Scottish troops. And, and it's about half you know, Scottish and Indian and the other half is English. So this is a pretty well-fought group of men. This is some of the best forces the British have. So if there's anyone who's going to make this battle happen, it's these guys. They know what they're doing. The first battalions at 5 a.m. during the bombardment, they crawl on into no man's land. They're only about 80 yards, some cases even closer to the German line. There's two battalions in the front. They move out, and the two battalions behind them move into the firing line, and they stand on their ladders and get ready to go. The bombardment switches to the high explosive to blow apart the German line, and that lasts for 10 minutes. There's reports that they, the Germans are staring over their trenches during that bombardment. They're looking at the British as these artillery shells fall around them because the shells are so ineffective and they're so wildly off mark. 
Jeez. The officers blow their whistle. The British troops stand up and in most cases start to walk in order, like in lines toward the German lines. Well, yeah, you don't want to make it hard. (laughs) Immediately, the men at the front are just mowed down in lines. At knee level. At knee level. So a lot of them are wounded and not killed. Right. Yeah, World World War I sucked like that. That's how you survived the war. (laughs) Without knees? You had a leg wound. A lot of guys got leg wounds in this war. Um, But hundreds of men managed to reach the German lines. Um, There were holes blown in the uh, barbed wire in enough places. And the northern pincer had the advantage that they had a couple of mines under the German lines. And so they blew those mines and those produced these big craters that they were able to use as protection and little inlets into the German lines. So they managed to form three footholds from that first wave. But the second wave that's coming up behind them is just annihilated. It's just annihilated. No one really even reaches the German lines. Um, a one tiny party, one of the battalions that tries to attack from those second waves, um, manages to get about 100 of its men into the German lines. So we're talking maybe 300 to 400 men have reached the German lines out of a couple of thousand. The rest are either wounded or stuck, like pinned down in no man's land, or are already killed. The Germans open up a counter-bombardment, and they begin to bomb no man's land and the British trenches. So not only are they trying to attack in machine gun fire, there's now shells raining down on them in every direction. It's so confused that the support wave, that next wave that's supposed to come behind them to support them, they can't even form up their troops. They're shelled into hiding. Those first waves that push through and they take that land and they're wiped out, they are isolated from 5 a.m. until 1.30 p.m. And they're just pushing forward, pushing forward. The guys who managed to get into the German lines, they have a huge group of grenades. Like they sometimes walked across with just like slings of grenades. And they're pushing forward through the German lines. But there's no one coming in behind them. Because as they try to form the support lines, the first round of support lines is just mowed down by, artil- um, by machine guns. By the time they kind of gather themselves and the men figure out what's going on, it takes hours. And they form up that next group at 1.30 to support them. The Germans know what's coming. So they just bomb the reserve trenches of the British. They bomb the trench line. They have machine guns from the second German line just firing over the first line to where they think the men would be. So there's constant bullets just flying at these British groups trying to form up. And in many cases, they lose a third of their men just trying to gather in good order. So they don't attack. So those initial guys who had survived that those barbed wire entangles, those guys who have managed to push through the craters that just got into those front lines, they're completely isolated. Now the Germans are attacking them and throwing grenades back at them. And yet through all this, there are promising reports to the German, to the generals of the British army. And General Haig, who is absolutely hated by a lot of people in Britain because of what, he, what you're about to see, he goes, well, I think if we just attack more we send in more troops, we'll be able to puncture a bigger hole. We just need to send in more men. He orders a bayonet attack at 8 p.m. So these guys with fully armed guns, barely punctured into their lines, losing huge portions of their troops. There's men impaled on barbed wire. There's men literally blown to smithereens by artillery shells. There's guys desperately bombing their way up the line. And he says, let's do a bayonet attack at dusk. His brigadier generals who had actually been on site tell him he's crazy and they force him to cancel the attack overnight 
they evacuate every single man who had managed to breach a hole in the German line. And on the northern attack, they retreat. At, by about 3 a.m., the 300 men who were still alive, most of them partially wounded, and who had actually gotten to the German lines, only from two of the battalions of these six that were participating, that actually got to the German lines, they retreat back to the British lines, and the attack is a failure. That's the northern pincer. So we're not off to a great start on the British side of things. I called that the successful attack. Yeah, th- that's why I'm saying we're not off to a great start. It's, 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 it's something, but it's, I don't know if it's necessarily money. No, but let's talk about Albert money. Because what's interesting to me is not the big picture um, tactics behind some of these fights. Um, if you want to see an example of what I just described, go watch the beginning scene of the 1930s version of All Quiet on the Western Front. That movie is amazing. It won the first Academy Award. It's old, but it shows, it's from the French and German perspective, and a, a trench attack. And you just see the troops going back and forth across no man's land, killing each other. And it, the, the whole point of that movie was to try to prevent World War II. It, 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 did, it did not. Right. Um, but what's interesting to me about these battles is the fact that these are, these are human beings. These are men who are doing this, and they're doing it willingly. And when you hear them talk about it, they talk about it being horrifying, and a lot of them weren't willing to talk about it much in the future. But they just describe it as a job they had to do. The story of Albert Money comes from a book um, that is very short. It's, uh, we'll put in the show notes, but it's only 16 pages long. And a huge part of it's taken up by some weird diatribe about Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis that the author, who is related to Albert Money, thinks is his grandson, loosely related to Albert Money's story. Because this is Albert Money's only experience in World War I. He doesn't, uh, spoilers, he does not die. But this is his, I mean, the war ends after this for him because of what happens to him. And... We gotta Sounds rem- ominous. We got to remember, you'll see, you got to remember that this is a man who had hopes and dreams and a family and he was there to do his job and fight for his country and he, he joined up patriotically and he's trying to do the best he can. They believe, at least at this point in the war, in these tactics. They think that they can win. In fact, the British showed up before this battle with confidence. They had almost succeeded at Neuve-Chapelle. Almost. They can succeed if they just push hard enough. They'll break the Germans. They'll break the line. Once we can break through, then the war will open up and then we can win it because we have better soldiers. We're we're the British Empire. We'll do it. And the men believed that. And yet we have already described how horribly that northern pincer went. So here's the southern pincer. And it goes through the same basic foundations, okay? We have the same number of battalions, two in the front, two in support. And then there's there's two that are expected to join in the support pretty soon. And there's a couple more behind them. They do the same thing where there is a you know, 40-minute artillery barrage. It's the same barrage. The men move up about 80 yards into no man's land. The next wave shows up in the firing trench. That's that front, front line trench. And the same thing. The Germans are taunting them. The German, you can see the German bayonets. And here, though, the artillery barrage does absolutely nothing. In fact, tons of the shells fall on the British lines themselves. They notice that the shrapnel shells aren't even breaking the lines. What Albert Money says is the night before, a bunch of engineers, in World War I, an engineer is more like a carpenter. They're the guys who were the grunts. The engineers crawled out into no man's land and all of those ditches that filled up um, in no man's land, all those little rivers, they had put planks of wood across them 
so that men could run over the ditches and not have to go through the barbed wire. I mean, that sounds good in principle, right? But doesn't that just make them a bigger target for the machine guns? It, it, it doesn't, it works in principle, but not in reality. And so Albert Money mentions that. He's, this is his quote. Quote, our engineers put small bridges over the night before, just room for one man to run over, and they were made of new timber, a good target, and playing on them with machine guns, not much chance to get over. Some got across, and some tried to jump across the water. If you got in it, then 10 to 1, betting odds, you would never get out. No chance at all if you were wounded. That is where a lot of the missing of the Northamptons are, poor fellows. So who are these Northamptons? They're the first wave, and Albert Money's in the second wave. He watched them run through this. He watched them run across these planks. He watched these men fall in screaming. And then he himself, only a couple of minutes later, about 10 minutes later, charged after them. That's, I mean, at that point, wouldn't you rather just go first? Actually, yeah. Usually the first wave had less casualties than the second wave. For like so many reasons, I'm sure. But the two, the two major ones being, one, it probably costs you some nerve watching how things go for that first wave, having to see what your fate is about to be. But also, second wave is the one where the Germans are like, ah, so that's what they're doing. Yeah, and um, in future battles, it's the third and fourth and fifth waves when the battle is going badly that the Germans utterly massacre. There's a battle that comes in in uh, later in this year, which is the most interesting battle of the war to me because it's the Battle of Olbert Ridge, just 10 times larger with similar effects. Um, where, is, there, is the ridge ten, ten times larger? <laughs> uh, they're fighting over like coal pits and things, so it's a little different. But it's it's the same basic land. Um, no, in that battle, like there's battalions of 650 men attack, and 647 of them are shot. And we're talking everyone is shot. Well, that's exactly what just happens in front of Albert Money. This first wave, the this um, the Northamptons, um, and to, to the left of Northamptons are a bunch of guys from London. These guys are all from the same area. Of London. So imagine what this looks like back home. You know, these are all guys that live in this area called Northampton, you know, that area. They're all, they all know each other. They all live in the same streets. And a lot of times these guys formed up together from the same groupings in, in some counties in Britain. This attack wipes out the entirety of the young men in an entire area. Now, these aren't the PALS battalions that attacked in the Battle of the Somme in the next year, which were, you know, you'd have every single stockbroker in London get killed in one battle, but it's close. It's a little more dispersed than that. It's like uh, if the, you know, we're in Sacramento, if the Sacramento Metro had a battalion and in one day, you know, 300 young men from Sacramento died in one battle. You feel that. That, that would shockwave your, your location. Yeah, fundamental changes to a, to, a, to a region. So in front of Albert Money, you know, a huge region's youth is killed. Most of them are shot in the knees or the leg. And so it's like, it's sad that that becomes the good result. So what, what Albert Money does is he gets up and he, they're, they're more or less running at this point because they're running into the machine guns. There's artillery shells flying around them. And he mentions that he had told a 17-year-old kid who's in his um, section with him, told him, hey, if you get shot, you have to fall down and play dead if you're out in the open. Because if you wiggle around, they'll shoot you. If you get shot, roll into a ditch or some form of shell hole and then wait there until you can crawl back at nighttime or our attack pushes farther back, pushes the Germans far enough back and then, you know, you'll have friendly forces around you. If the Germans counterattack, shove your face in the dirt and play dead. 
That's what they all had to discuss. And he mentions this because the 17-year-old kid was green. He had never fought in a battle before, whereas Albert Money had. He had fought in some of those earlier battles. And they had to tell him, you know, this is how you don't get killed. Those are those skills that you have, have to have in World War I, how to pretend to be dead. Well, as they're running across, that 17-year-old kid gets shot, spins around and falls down and plays dead right in front of them. And before Albert can even tell his friend what to do, just in case, he gets shot through the leg and he falls down too. Uh, money does or Money's friend does? Both of them do. They're both shot by the same machine gun wave and they both drop. They haven't even reached the German line. They're in between that barbed wire river he mentioned and the German line. It's still like 60 yards in front of him. He never even made it through no man's land before he got shot. Now, a bunch of his soldiers managed to push on by. But the overwhelming majority of his battalion, which is, remember, the second wave, is lying wounded in no man's land somewhere. In fact, I actually cannot find any reference to any of the men in his battalion even reaching the German line. They're all pinned down or shot. What comes next is, to me, the telling story of World War I. Because the support and follow battalions are what are called the Black Watch in his sector. Now, the Black Watch is a Scottish Highland regiment. These are a bunch of guys fighting in kilts. That's amazing. I like, I like these guys already. Also, I'm a little disappointed that they are not killing the British, as is their, their custom in kilts. T- technically, they are British. But still. They don't like being called that. Exactly. That's, that's more my point. So what poor Albert Money has to do right now is he, he's shot in the leg, and he, apparently his leg is dead. Like, he can't move it. Is his leg dead or just playing dead? Haha, <laughs> 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 dark jokes. What happens to him is he has to try to crawl his way back to his own line. And he's got to try to play dead. He rolls into a ditch. And what he basically does is he just slowly rolls himself and crawl, an army crawls his way back towards the British line. And he actually gets to a point where he, he gets into this ditch. And he's really close to the British line. And he, he, he can't get out. He doesn't have the strength without his leg while also keeping himself covered to get out. I mean, he had crawled along little tiny ravines. We're talking like six inch, one foot higher little ravines where the water just flowed to keep himself as protected as possible. In one instance, he tries to kind of lift his head up before he gets to this ditch that he's stuck in and bolts fly all around him. And he has to put his head back down and stay still for a while. And then he waits. And then he crawls again, crawls again. Then he falls into this ditch near his own lines. He tries to poke his head out again. He gets shot at again. He has to put his head down again. It takes him hours just to get that far and he's stuck there. And the entire time he's like, you know, probably bleeding from a being shot in the leg wound. And apparently his nerves were severed in some way because he can't move his leg. And this is, this is one of the insane things about the whole, like, if you get shot in the leg, play dead. It has got to be real hard to play dead immediately after being shot. Yeah. And yet thousands of these guys were doing this. Well, at the same time, the Germans are shelling the British lines, just like they did on the Northern Pincer. The attack is a complete and utter failure. There's almost no one in the German line right now. So the German line is actively rifle firing back at the British who are all trapped. Well, guess what the British do? They form up their support battalions to try to attack again. They try to bombard the Germans. It does nothing. And at around one o'clock, 1.30 in the afternoon, the Scottish line forms up. And as they're forming up before their 130 attack, Albert Money notices this Scott, Scottish guy 
jumping out of the British trench, running into no man's land, and picking up wounded men, and literally throwing them back into the British trench. <laughs> God, you just... The Scottish don't do anything with subtlety. Not even pants. <laughs> but this man's amazing, isn't he? He's jumping up into artillery fire, rifle fire, machine gun fire, name a way of shooting, and he's jumping into it. And he's picking up wounded men who are crawling back to safety of their line. And he's literally throwing them back into their lines. And Albert Money even mentions, like, it's no time for being comfy. Like, it's not the time for him to gently set me down. No, I want it back in the British line. Yeah, and I'm willing to be thrown by a Scotsman to get there. And the Scotsman picks him up and says, hey, man, I'm part of the next wave. I'm going to, I'm going right past you. I'm going to try to get as many people as possible. Sorry about this. Chuck. <laughs> the fact that he bothers to even like apologize in advance is a lot of consideration for a guy who does not need to be doing anything considerable at this moment. He grabs, I think it's six or seven more troops in the time it takes for them to form up their attack, the Black Watch's attack. He chucks them all back into the trench Albert Money receives a shot of morphia and his experience in World War I is more or less over. He is slowly carted back through the trenches and the attack continues on without him. And my wondering is what happens to that Scotsman? I mean, he's a hero in the story. He saved the life of a bunch of men and he got up out of his trench probably 10 minutes later and he charged across no man's land. He charged across those barbed wire entanglements that were untouched. Did he get caught in them? Did he get hit by a shell? Did he get shot by a bullet? What we do know is that the Black Watch and the other follow-up battalions with them, they were able to puncture through the first line and all the way into the German second line. They bombed their way up. That, that follow-up attack did succeed in punching through the line. And we're pretty sure that the, the entire Black Watch that managed to get that far was killed or captured. Oh, that's so depressing. I really like that guy. He likely survived. Because as, as crazy as all of this is, you know, usually in these horrible attacks like Old Bear Ridge, which is a massive failure, only about a quarter of the men are actually killed. And a lot are very severely wounded. And a lot are very minorly wounded. And that's why this war is awful. It's because if it wasn't for the fact that Albert Money's leg wound was so severe that it took like two years to recover, by which time he got to miss most of the really, really severe battles of 1916 and 17 he wouldn't have survived the war. If you survived a battle unscathed, the chances of getting a severe wound or being killed went up and up and up. Or if you were lightly wounded, they would just send you right back. There are stories of guys being wounded six or seven times and participating in every battle of the war. They just keep getting wounded, shot in the hand, shot in the shoulder, glancing blow across the cheek. Which is a really nice way of saying shot in the face. Yep. To end the battle story, the men that do... Um, managed to survive, hopefully some of the Black Watch, hopefully our Scotsmen, the men that do remain in the British trenches also retreat at night. And by the end of the day, 11,000 men were killed or wounded in a strip of about maybe 400 yards of trenches for no land gained whatsoever. It had no positive effect on the French attack. They never captured Aubert Ridge. The battle that is occurring up north when the Germans are attacking was still at full ferocity. And one of the saddest results of this is it ends up with a big political crisis because the lesson that the that General Haig and the other 
British generals in charge of this battle had was, well, it would have been more effective if we had more artillery shells. If we had just bombed the German line with more explosives, we could have punctured a better hole and lost less men. So the next time we do this, we need to have more shells. Well, they were told by the guy who ran the munitions uh, division of the government, we don't have enough shells. It caused such a crisis, it's called the Shell Crisis of 1915, that the British government collapsed. And what I mean by British government collapsed is the, the party in control basically had to resign. And you end up with a coalition government and all sorts of different things happen politically. But that's the lesson they got out of this. It's not that attack didn't work. That's stupid. It was, we need more shells. We need more men. We need to attack on a wider front. We need a bomb for longer. Yeah. we. You tend to see really simple solutions from a lot of people in situations like this, I think. There's, yeah, there's no attention paid to like, are the fundamentals that we're going after correct here? Or is it simply like, oh, it failed because we didn't have enough bombs. If we'd had more bombs, we would have done better. That's, that's a great way of basically saying, hey, I did my job correctly. You did your job wrong. And as I think as harshly critical as we can be to some of these generals, let's try to think about it from their perspective. These are older men. I mean, these are guys in their 60s. 50s and 60s. These are not stupid men. These are not guys who want their men to die. But they've been trained in tactics that have worked in the various colonial wars and these small wars like the, um, or relatively small wars like the Boer War in South Africa. These are guys with experience fighting. They know how to move troops. They know tactics. But the problem is their tactics don't match the reality anymore. Right. You can't just m attack with these giant waves of men and hope you have enough momentum to crash through these highly reinforced German lines. What they do learn from this is the hurricane bombardment doesn't work. That 40-minute bombardment's just not enough. They need to try to pummel the, the German line into just nothingness. They try that July 1st, 1916. That's the first day of the Somme. And 60,000 guys are casualties. 25,000 of them die. So that doesn't work. They actually learn, ironically, that what they did in the battles of Neuchapel and battles of Aubert Ridge, their tactics, artillery-wise, the way they formed up their troops, that's actually what works. That short bombardment, push that first line through, leapfrog your troops, that works. Having them in giant lines, running at the machine guns, that doesn't work. And what they, uh, the way they solve this problem later on is um, actually the Canadians and Australians solve the problem. Good job, Canada. The Canadians actually take what the French are trying to take at this point. Remember, this the French are attacking with a much larger attack. We're talking hundreds of thousands of men become casualties in the French attack. Um, they're trying to take this place called Vimy Ridge. And it's an actual ridge. It's like 50 feet tall and it's got cliffs and stuff. Why are we throwing shade at the other ridge? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure why that's the running joke of this episode. <laughs> because 11,000 guys tried to take this ridge and couldn't. That's fair, yeah. It, it was not a worthwhile ridge. It's more than 11,000. 11,000 of them didn't get there. The Canadians in actually taking that ridge, they learn, well, quick bombardment and attack with, you know, have your own machine guns on the attack, have less guys, um, have a lot more grenades. Don't try to run headlong into the German line. Try to run past it and then attack it from behind, stuff like that. And it, it, that is what becomes fascinating later on in the war. Um, and they, they figure out how to do it in 1917. And then they the war ends, the Germans try it and run out of men in 1918 and then the Americans show up and we basically flooded the war with more men to get shot and we overwhelmed the Germans. 
That's how the war ends. I, I just simplified World War One to a ridiculous extent. Yeah, but I mean, I do, I do like that the uh, the takeaway here is America did a Zerg rush and then we won. No, straight up, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> shout out to those of you still playing StarCraft in 2020. Yeah. So basically, shout out to Korea. <laughs> in the end, they did just need more manpower. The manpower just happened to be well-fed, six-foot-tall, really, really, really good marksmen Americans by the end of the war, who apparently were terrible troops. <laughs> Go America. Just a little, a drop a little bit of American World War I history in here. We are described by the Australians, who are kind of like our cousins. Like, if, if, Brit, if they're, they're very similar in terms of their mentality. I could, I could see that. Australia does feel like the more responsible version of a cowboy. Exactly. Just with a weird accent. That struggles to say its own country's name. <laughs> no, no insult intended, Australia. Lots of assault, insult uh, intended. <laughs> Regardless, though, um, the Australians are the ones training and they're the actual officers of the Americans. And they are like, well, the Americans are big and strong and fast and um, brave is the word they use. <laughs> <laughs> but it's brave with three extra A's thrown in there to, to really showcase just how much they mean it in a not positive way. Well, they mean it like we would just jump up and charge the machine guns. And they're just like, what, what, stop, 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 stop. Oh, okay, you, you lost half of your guys, but you took the machine gun. I'm glad we didn't have to do that. That's why they liked us. Oh, gosh. Go we America. lost a ton of people in World War One. Yeah. I mean, we lost less than World War II. Um, We lost 100,000 dead, but we were there for like four months. It's a high turnover rate. We lost 100,000 dead. Yeah, it was really, really high casualties for the men that were there, but we had you know, 100,000 coming every day almost. It was insane. So regardless, though, the reason why I want to tell the story of this battle is we forget the small encounters in a war of attrition like World War I. This kind of battle and these kinds of isolated attacks would go on sporadically for you know from about February 1915 until about March 1918. The war ends in November of 1918. And this is year upon year of these little isolated attacks, which sometimes the artillery blows a hole in the line. Sometimes there is a ground mist that you know blocks your troops from being seen. So you actually achieve surprise. Sometimes your shells don't do anything and everyone dies. What are you going to do about it as the soldier on the ground? You're going to try to do your best. You're going to hope for the best. You don't have control as a soldier. Albert Money simply did what he was supposed to do. And he was lucky and he survived and he lived a long, happy life and had a family in Australia. He emigrated to Australia. You see the numbers, the casualties of 11,000 men. The human brain can't calculate that. We can't picture what 11,000 men is. And what I always find interesting, what I wanted to tell with this little story is how pathetic this battle was. And yet, the grandson of Albert Money felt like he needed to write Albert's super simple story because Albert Money was a part of this incredibly brutal experiment in warfare. And the end result was he got shot five minutes into the battle and survives. Think about how many men had that experience in the war. Show up, get shot, go home. And maybe go again. And then maybe go again. It's, it's really, we talk a lot about how much more brutal World War I was than most major conflicts in human history. Like, there's a lot of like brutality in like older conflict as well, but like just in terms of that sheer war of attrition and the futility of just sending wave after wave of men out of a dirt hole into the into the like wall of machine gun fire, 
World War I has a very unique place in history as this just like absolutely wasteful grinder of humanity. It's so fascinating and depressing, especially because like, you know, you also talk about like it kind of marks a lot of the like end of the romanticism of war and that kind of thing. Humanity goes from this, this, well, when you go to war, the best thing that can happen to you is you charge in and you do your part and you stand on the mountain of your enemies, waving a flag victorious, that kind of thing. And that, and that is how you survive war. And that is how you get home to see your family. And it's fascinating to go, oh no, at this point in history, the best case scenario for you as an individual is show up and just get a non-fatal wound early on. Because if you get a, if you get a non-fatal wound too too far into it, you're behind enemy lines and you're hosed. But if you can get shot early and you can get shot correctly, you might actually be one of the people who doesn't just die faceless in a in a barrage of uh, machine gun fire. And at this point, early on in the war, with how good of soldiers these guys are, these are the trained marksmen. First of all, for the British Army, they're all getting annihilated, and they're having to, you know, find new guys to put into the line. That's where you get all these. Um, volunteer soldiers after this but you know these are the guys that were still willing to even if they got a minor wound they would just keep going i mean that's how the scotsmen got to the second line of the germans they just kept going that's that's brave bravery to the point of stupidity right they're not going to succeed but that was their orders and they were going to do it and they did it well those scotsmen are actually a really interesting kind of counterpoint to the point that i was just making because it really does feel like they are operating from that place of like an old view of war of like, there is this like bravado and heroism to it. And you tell that story about the Scotsman who's just running through no man's land, picking people up and throwing them back in to the, uh, into safe space and even taking the time to kind of apologize before he chucks them. Yeah. And it's so fascinating. And then you go like, Within, within a couple hours, he was charging and he took the first line and he made it to the second line. And then in all likelihood, him and all of his friends all died. Captured or killed. Which means killed and or captured and then killed. That bravado, like, it's amazing and it really is inspiring in the story, but it ultimately res results in that guy not making it back. No. I guess to kind of finalize our point, I wanted to tell you the, and this is off of Wikipedia, so people can criticize that if they want, but um, the Black Watch got two Victoria Crosses in this battle. And Victoria Cross is the British form of the Medal of Honor. And it's a very British version of a Medal of Honor. <laughs> well, Queen Victoria does, developed it, so that's why it's named after her. One of my favorite things is to read what men did to get a Victoria Cross in World War I, because it's nuts. So a guy named David Finley, who was 22, um, here's what he did during this battle. Remember, he's part of the Black Watch, and he's one of the guys that gets deep into their lines. He led a bombing party of 12 men, into the attack. So that means he was a probably a corporal. By the time he gets to the line, 10 of them have been shot or shot and killed. Shot or, you know, wounded or killed. He then takes himself and the two survivors and he uh, basically grabbed a bunch of wounded men in his retreat and they all pick up guys and firemen carry them back across no man's land on their way back. He leads them through the attack. They're all shot. They all pick up a wounded guy and they run back their own lines. He was later killed in the war. Or a different guy, this is the other guy who won, named John Ripley. He pushes all the way through. He's the first guy to leave the parapet, first guy to leave the line. 
he standing in the middle of no man's land when everyone's getting shot, he's pointing at men to where to go, trying to spread them out as much as possible. He pushes across one of the exploded holes in the German line and pushes to the second line of trenches. He, at this point, only has seven men with him, probably from an initial starting of about a hundred. And they basically hold up the entire German counterattack alone for hours in the German second line, completely surrounded. He returns home from the war, survives the whole thing, and dies falling off a ladder. <laughs> Sorry, John Ripley. You were, a, you were amazing, but that's an ignominious death. <laughs> you, you, you hate to see it. <laughs> you, hate, you hate to see somebody go the same way that, um, having just edited, as we talked about earlier, the, um, the endurance episodes, in a similar way that Shackleton goes. Where he's like, he survives everything and is about to go back and then just dies. Yeah. Like, oh, come on. You, you, hate, you hate to see somebody go like that. Although, I mean, falling off a ladder is based on context. Like, that's probably a better way to, like, having survived doing something silly as a civilian. Is, there's almost something kind of, like, nice about that. Like, having, having survived to have the freedom to die doing something stupid. It's that kind of thing that makes World War I so fascinating to me. And I... I just try to pour over the different experiences of people who participated in it because it's so unique and no one else except this one generation of men had this kind of crossing of the old and the new modern weapons with early modern tactics. And then they were just these men involved in it. With the Battle of Ober Ridge, in the utter failure of the British to do anything of worth and their failure of their tactics, the failure of their generals, the failure of the attack and um, division by division, battalion by battalion with the highest rates of casualties in the entire war. There's no memorial to this battle. France along the old line is filled with memorials with name after name of man and men that died or men that were missing. And yet this battle was the most important and terrifying and traumatic experience to the men who participated. And this war was so brutal and so long, and yet so much of it is totally forgotten, yet it was so important to these guys. And I think that perfectly encapsulates World War I in, a, in true footnote fashion by telling the story of the most unimportant battle of the war. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Footnotes. To learn more about this insignificant battle in World War I, you can check our sources in our show notes. Uh, I believe we have a short book and the British website, and apparently also Wikipedia, but we're not going to endorse Wikipedia necessarily. To learn more about our show, you can follow us on Facebook or on Instagram, where you can discuss the show with us, see what episodes we have coming up, and get a look behind the scenes. As always, we would love it if you would review us on iTunes, give us a five-star uh, rating, all that stuff. It's seriously like that is the biggest way to help the show grow other than maybe, and this one's super easy, just tell a friend about it. If you enjoy this, if you like the episodes, what we talk about, you think that there's a subject that we've covered that you, somebody that you know would enjoy, just send it over to them. It's like a text message. It's super easy. So uh, do that and we'll keep making the show. Uh, until next time, thanks for joining us.